Okay, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 11. One more week in Genesis chapter 11. If you didn't get a set of notes on the way in, you can raise your hand and, and the Connections team will hook you up with hard copy. You can get the PDF at the, the uh, YouTube link and the, and the Facebook link. And uh, for most people, by the time they watch the live stream of this, it'll be on mbtkc.org. Let's uh, go to the Lord, let's pray, let's ask the Lord to help us in his word this morning, amen? Uh, man, good time of worship, seeing a baptism. Uh, we got three-fourths of our church back from this latest round of Omicron. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, spring's just around the corner, praise the Lord. All right, so keep, let's keep moving forward. Um, yeah, I'm grateful this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, and God, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and, Lord, our opportunity to be able to come together and worship you and to see people worship you with their lives. It's a privilege, and Lord, help us to never get over that. Lord, help us to never get over your word, God, the power, the incredible majesty and precision of your word. Uh, it's proofs over who you are and over who you are in our lives. And Lord, I just ask that you'd help us to see the majesty of your word, the power of your word, uh, the precision and the authority of your word. Lord, would you take our reasons and our excuses, and Lord, would you set those aside and let your word speak to us this morning. God, we ask that the enemy would be bound and that, that the distractions that he would seek to employ to distract us from your word, uh, the questions, the doubts. Uh, let your word speak and have free course. Lord, I pray that you'd take the weakness of who I am and my stumbling lips and, and uh, my, my, my mind that, that jumps ahead of what I'm reading and you know, just all of that and, and that Lord, you would set that aside and just through the power of your word and your spirit, you'd have your way with us. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name that Lord, who you are and what you've said uh, would be manifest in our life for your glory, amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 10. We're looking still at the kingdoms of this world and we're seeing the lens of history zero in on the family of Abraham. So we'll, we'll end, today's gonna be a lot of information. This will be a more informational message and, and, but there's a lot of things to learn and apply to our life along the way. And so while we'll be covering a lot of content and details this morning, um, let, let's, let's just keep our hearts soft to the word. Um, you know, in Genesis chapter three and verse 15, we see the very first prophecy in scripture that the woman, her seed would be a skull crusher. He would destroy Satan, who actually destroyed humanity's relationship with the Lord in the garden in paradise. And, um, and so what we saw is the lens of this Genesis 3.15 begin to zero in here in the families of the earth after the flood of Genesis chapter seven and eight. So the commission that God gave to Adam in Genesis chapter one, he gives it again to Noah in Genesis chapter nine, verse one. 
Uh, they are to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. They're to cover the earth and to fill the earth with sons of God uh, who will love and honor and be a part of God's kingdom. Uh, they'll love and honor the Lord. And so in chapter 10, what we saw is the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. And in chapter 11, we last time specifically saw the rebellion that he led against uh, God, against God's kingdom, against the commission that God gave his, uh, in that present world, his greatest grandfather, Noah. Um, you know, the, we looked at a little bit of the secular uh, history behind that and, and we saw that Nimrod's cry was for humanity to leave the religion of Shem and follow the institutes of the mystery religion that he had set up and, and so we saw that all false mystery religion has its origins on the plain of Shinar in this place that today we know of as Babylon. And, um, and so, so what we're seeing is God confounding the languages so that humanity is forced to obey the commission that he gave them in Genesis chapter nine and verse one. Uh, and so now, no surprise, we see the focus of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy shift to the family of Abraham. And so point number four, we're still going through this content, that's not a mistake. We're just continuing this section in Genesis. Uh, the children of Shem, Abraham's father, that's our next point for study. These are the generations, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Now we keep seeing generations in Genesis. In chapter two, verse four, we saw the generations of the heaven, or the earth and the heavens, uh, the generations of creation in Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter five, we saw the generations of humanity, the book of the generations of Adam in chapter five and verse one. And then in chapter six and verse nine, we saw the generations of Noah. But now here in Genesis chapter 10, we begin to see the generations of the sons of Noah and then in chapter 11 specifically, now the generations of Shem. Do you see how the lens of prophecy, this Genesis 3.15, where's the Messiah coming from? Well, it's through Shem. And before we're done, we'll see it's through Abraham, Isaac. Um, we'll see it's through Jacob and then also um, uh, through Judah. We'll, we'll see all of that in our, our study of Genesis. Okay, so these are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and beget Arphaxed two years after the flood. Uh, two years after the flood, he's 100 years old and his son is born. And what we have now are these generations. And Arphaxed begets Selah. And notice that Shem, after he has a son, he lives for 500 more years. His son, after he begets, uh, begets Selah, he lives 403 years and he has a bunch more kids. And then he begets Eber in verse 14. After he begets Eber, he lives for 403 years, has a bunch more kids. And then Eber begets Peleg, and after that, 430 years, Eber lives and he has a bunch more kids. And then Peleg begets Reu, and now watch this. Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years, and he has a bunch more kids, begets sons and daughters. Then at 32, Reu has Serug, and has a bunch more, I mean, they're just being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth. Serug, he gives birth, right, he has Nahor, Nahor Terah, and then Terah, verse 26, lives 70 years and beget Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
So a couple things in these generations of Shem. Notice that the lifespans are rapidly declining. I remember Noah lived for 350 years after the flood. 350 years after the flood. That meant that Abraham knew Noah personally, right? Their lives over intersect, they overcross. So, but the, the, but the lifespans are declining. We'll talk about some of the implications of that in just a second. But also notice that everyone is bearing children at earlier ages with each generation, right? After Shem, they're, they're getting busy quicker with the exception maybe of Terah. He takes his time uh, at 70 years, but, but they're getting busy quicker, getting early, you know, earlier they get, they get to work having babies. But now here's the thing, right? Both Noah and Shem, particularly Shem, lives alongside Abraham. Uh, he, is, he is alive for Abraham's life. Shem had lived alongside Methuselah for almost 100 years. If you do the math, it's 98 years. And Methuselah, if you will remember, he lived for 243 years at the same time as Adam, contemporaneously with Adam himself. So get that, right? Abraham is gonna learn about God and the things of God. He would have known and learned from a man who was removed from Adam by only one generation. In terms of the overlapping of the lives of the generations of humanity, Abraham is learning from a guy who was removed from Adam himself by only one person, one generation. Do you guys see that? Is everybody with me? If not, maybe you can do that math. I highly recommend Usher's Chronology and you'll want to get knowledgeable in Excel because uh, you will have to build a spreadsheet to be able to work out where the ages and the numbers all overlap. Uh, Haley put it this way, Abraham could have learned directly from Shem, Noah's account of the flood, or from Noah himself, the flood and Methuselah's account of Adam and the Garden of Eden. So there it is, Shem lives alongside Abraham and Shem lived long enough to see even Isaac flourish. And so that's interesting. He lives until, right, they see the child of promise, this birth of Isaac. They see him grow and flourish before they pass. But now here's the bummer. Aside from Eber, let's talk about the generations of Shem. Aside from Eber, Eber is the patriarch of the Hebrews. It's from Eber that you get the name Hebrew. Shem outlives all of his offspring until Isaac, right? Until Abraham and Isaac, until he sees the child of promise come, Eber has to watch all of his children and his children's children die. Uh, only Eber outlives him. Verse 27, Isn't that a, that, I mean, that would be a bummer, wouldn't it? To have like such long, you know, so again, Shem was, sired on the other side of the flood. And uh, even his, his you know, the, the, the first children, right, the first child that he has in the first couple generations, they're very long lived, but those, those lifespans begin to decline until you get down to Abraham and what did he live, 175 years. Uh, and from there it just keeps shortening until we get to our 70 to 80 years. And you see all of that recorded in scripture. Verse 27, now here's another set of generations. Here, right, verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. So why? Well, Terah's another big deal. He's another big deal, okay. So Terah has Abram. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. Remember, Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur 
of the Chaldees. Okay, so the Chaldees or the Chaldees, this is Babylon, this is the plain of Shinar, this is the city of Ur. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Isaac. And Sarai was barren, she had no child, and Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, Lot, the son of Haran, is his son's son, Terah's son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth from them, or with them, from Ur of the Chaldees to go into a land of Canaan. And halfway there, right, they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days, it's Haran was a very fruitful place, it was good for cattle, it was good for their sheep, it was good for grazing, it was a great place to rest, and they will see as we study out Genesis, they actually get stuck there for a while on their way to Canaan. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran, and it's, and it's at that point that, that, that Abraham is now making his way uh, to Canaan. So, so maybe, um, maybe if you want, if you, want, if you want some backstory on what's happening here, um, you know, it's not scripture. It's, um, these would be, a, 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 you know, it'd be an apocryphal account, but the book of Jasher gives you the background story, the backstory on what's happening at this point in the life of Abraham. And basically the short of it would be that, that Nimrod is king at this time and, and uh, Abram is born. Nimrod has a dream that Terah's son basically destroys him and, and he doesn't know what it means and he talks to his wise men and it's basically the story, uh, you know, it parallels the account of Nebuchadnezzar with his wise men in, in spooky ways but, but basically they, they divine that, that uh, Terah's kid's gonna be the death of you. And uh, as you go on down through the book of Jasher you find out one of his descendants, Esau, actually ends up murdering Nimrod, and, and so, you know, again, this isn't scripture, but it's, it's a history, it's a commentary. Uh, people debate the origins of the book of Jasher. I'm just, if you want some backstory, this is the one that's out there, and so, basically, what, what, what takes place is Terah takes one of his servant's children and brings him to Nimrod for execution. Uh, Nimrod was, I mean, baby killing goes way back uh, to the other side of the flood. Uh, Molech worship um, has been a thing f- uh, from antiquity. And, uh, and so Nim- you know, Nimrod basically thinks his problems are solved and, and so Abraham is saved. He grows up and you'll remember that, that Abraham before his relationship with Jehovah, he starts out as an idolater, why? Well because his father is an idolater, he's a big time idolater, he's, he's actually crafting his own idols, uh, Terah, and, and so the way the story goes is that, that basically Abram gets discipled by Noah and Shem, he's got a relationship with Jehovah and these idols offend him and so he, he, go, he He's alone, I think, if I remember right, it was like his job to, to take care of the space or something. Anyway, while everybody's away, he just, he, he basically pulls a, a, a Gideon. And uh, he destroys all the idols with a hatchet, with an ax, he destroys them all, and then he puts the ax in the hand of the largest idol, which is supposed to represent Jehovah. 
And, uh, and so he puts the ax in his hand and, and Tara's like, you were supposed to be watching this stuff, why did you destroy all my idols? And, and uh, you know, Abram lies and, and says, well, this, this God was offended at these other lesser gods and you were worshiping him and he destroyed them all and, and uh, why are you lying to me? And so Tara tattles on Abram to, 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 to Nimrod and, and so then, you know, then the drama unfolds, you know, and anyway, long and the short of it is, is, is Nimrod has another dream, and, and uh, it's gonna be the death of him, and evil eagle is plucking out his eye, and, and, it's, and it's Abram that's, that's at the root of all of it, and what is this all about? Yeah, you gotta get rid of this guy, and, and so he calls Tara to account, and Tara's like, yeah, I switched babies on you, and I'm really sorry about that, and it's like, okay, well, if you're, if you're gonna live, you gotta give up your son, and anyway, the long and the short of it is he gives up his son and Haran with him. This would be how Lot ends up fatherless. Um, he gives up both of his boys because Haran apparently was saying, if Abram does end up taking over, I'll throw my lot in with him and, and uh, I'll rebel against Nimrod, but, but he's still kind of a, a me monster and, and evil at heart. And, and, uh, and so Nimrod throws him into a fiery furnace. And then, you know, um, Abram's brother dies immediately. He's consumed by the flames and, and uh, Abram's just in there chilling, walking around for three days. He's walking around in this fiery furnace and everybody's freaking out about it. And finally they come to Nimrod and like, you gotta do something because the dude won't die. And, uh, and it's kind of an echo of Daniel's uh, you know, events in the same place many generations later. And, and so they call Abram out of the fiery furnace and the only thing that burned was the bonds that was, that was binding his hands. And, and so out he comes and they give him 300 servants and gold and, and you can read about you know, Noah coming out wealthy uh, even in scripture. And, and, um, and so then it comes down to it that um, that, that uh, you know, Nimrod, this dream's freaking him out and, and, and Abram's gotta die once and for all. And so what Terah does is he takes his son Abram, right? He takes his family, his wife, his, nep- his grandson, Abram's nephew, and they get them out of Ur of the Chaldees uh, to Haran. And so there's a, there's a basic book of Jasher backstory on what happened there. Uh, not scripture, probably worth reading once, some freaky stuff. Some of it will put the hair up on the back of your neck uh, and it'll make you grateful for scripture. But anyway, okay, so, <laughs> so there it is. I mean, there's some wild stuff in the book of Jasher. But it'd be a, it'd be a, a, a history or a commentary uh, on the backstory here. Okay, so let's talk about Abram's family here in 27 through 30. And so really, like I said, there's just a lot of information. I just wanna get some stuff into your head. I want you to be thinking about some of these major themes as we move forward through the, this book of beginnings, right? These generations of how everything got started. Why are we where we're at today? What's going on in the world today? All of this has its roots in the stories that we're gonna be studying and the scriptures that we're gonna be taking apart and examining and comparing with scripture. And so here's just a a few things, a few facts that you need to know up front as we study the life and the history of Abram in Genesis. He is one of scripture's key figures. I cannot overestimate the importance of Abraham uh, understanding the person, the life, the doctrine of Abraham in recognizing and understanding the rest of your Bible. He's a big deal in scripture. 
Abraham exists as the 10th generation from Noah, and that's very interesting, that's very key, because Abraham, ultimately, he's born a Gentile, but he's made the father of Israel. In biblical numerology, 10 is the number of Gentiles, and so, you know, what a dink. Abram is the 10th generation from Noah in this history of the families of the Gentile nations of the world. So that would be a, a spiritual picture there. He starts as a Gentile, but he's made father of the Jews, father of the nation of Israel. Abram is called, or Abraham is called a Hebrew. We'll see that in chapter 14, verse 13. And that name Hebrew comes from his forebearer, this other ancient one in this genealogy here in Genesis 11. Uh, Eber, right, 11.14, we see Eber. Abraham is mentioned 74 times in your New Testament. He stays a big deal for the rest of your Bible. He becomes a Jew through God's covenant in chapter 17. We'll study that in depth in Genesis chapter 17 and verse nine. Abram, his name means higher exalted father. And God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude or the father of many nations in Genesis chapter 17 and verse five. Now, when we get to chapter 22, we're gonna see unequivocally, Abraham is a picture. He is a type of God the Father. You want insight into God the Father, study the life of Abraham. And we see him being willing to, to, to uh, sacrifice his only begotten, his beloved son, for righteousness sake. Abraham is called the friend of God in Isaiah 41, verse eight, and James chapter two and verse 13. Why? Well, he walks with God. He's submitted to God's word, and he's willing to take up his cross. He's willing to enter into the sufferings of God himself. Uh, that's a, you know, God's a friend that's, I mean, he's closer, right? He sticks closer than a brother. Uh, God's, a, God's a good friend, he is with you. You know, it's like the psalmist says, and you know, uh, his estimation of his relationship with God is, I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, why? What does the scripture say? Thou art with me. God walks through us in the worst of our trials, in the toughest, in the hardest of times, in the times of unspeakable loss, whenever we walk, whenever we cross over from this mortal plane into eternity. It's God who is with us, so we fear no evil. We don't freak out, we don't get upset, we don't get wound up, because we've got this great friend who, oh by the way, is the omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God of creation. He is with us in the midst of our hardest times. He's a good friend. Well, Abram was willing to identify with God in this way. He was willing to sacrifice. Now, now, this was never God's plan for him to do it, but Abraham had to identify with Christ. He had to identify with God, and so we'll, we'll lay all of that out in Genesis 22. But this is, I mean, for God to say, Abram's my friend, Abraham's my friend. What incredible honor that is because he's walking with God. Isn't that what Jesus said to us as born again believers? Isn't that what he said to his disciples? I've called you friends. Oh, by the way, what did he tell them to do? To take up their cross and follow him. What does the New Testament clearly teach us to do? To take up our cross, to identify with Christ. You know, Jesus said, the world hates me, guess what? Bummer. 
bummer for you, sorry, but no surprise here, if they hate me, of course they hate you. Of course the world is gonna reject you because of who you are in Christ, what you stand for in the word of Christ. Don't take that personal, just take up your cross and follow the Lord. Be a friend of God, amen, is this making sense? Uh, This is critical. These are critical things that we'll need to see in this study. Now, in Genesis 15, we see a beautiful picture, a beautiful type of Abraham's conversion, right? His encounter with God in Genesis 15 is a picture or a type of salvation that's clearly seen in Romans chapter four. And all of these points are things that that you would do well to study out before we get to them. You'll get more out of these messages if you'll do that. Uh, So we'll see a a picture of salvation uh, from Romans chapter four in the life of Abraham. Now Abraham's nephew Lot has a name that means veiled or obscure one. Uh, Lot, well okay, so let's think about you know names, words, words have meaning. That's why we use them. Helps us to keep straight on what we're saying, what we're trying to communicate. What's a lot? Uh, A lot would be a part, right? When we think about casting lots, what do we have? We have something that's veiled or obscured that we're trying to get revealed. Uh, You'll see examples of the casting of the lot in scripture. Something that's veiled or obscured, we're trying to get through that to muddle our way forward. What is the right way? What is the right thing? What is, what is to be correctly known? And you'll see them casting lots. And so here's Lot, and we'll look at his life, and we'll find out that he's a type of the New Testament Christian living in the last days before destruction. Um, I, I would probably say he pictures most of the people living in this room Uh, or sitting in this room, who live in this wicked, evil world, whose righteous souls are vexed by the wickedness, uh, a Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, a culture that we're immersed in, that we're surrounded in. Um, You will will very much identify with Lot. Lot's problem we're gonna see is he's got a love for it. Uh, At the same time his righteous soul is vexed, uh, he he just keeps, keeps trying to marry the world. Uh, So here's this veiled and obscure one. Now Abraham's wife, um, her name Sarai, means domineering. And uh, we'll see some of that come out. I mean, she lives up to her name in the early days of their sojourning together in the land of Canaan. But she's she's gonna become Sarah. Everybody's growing. This is why, you know, you, you don't ever throw anybody away. You don't ever give up this is what happens, you hurt me, you did this, you whatever. Um, you, you Sarai, right? And then you throw them away, and this is somebody that, that God's working with. Hypocrite, right? I mean, takes one to know one. For every pointer, you know, every finger you're pointing at me, every pointer that you're launching at me, you know, what is it, there's at least three? Some people will point like this. They, they always say four, and I've never gotten my head around that. Like, if I'm, point, if I'm accusing, let's Eric, right? For every finger pointing at me, Eric says you've got four pointing back at you, and I, I think it's three, that's just me, but you know, th- there's three pointing back at, okay, so. Don't throw people away, God's, God's people are, I mean, do we believe Romans chapter eight or not? Is God at work in his people? Sometimes we have to tell people, no, you can't do that here. Um, but that doesn't mean we give up on them, that doesn't mean 
we, th- we throw them away, we throw that relationship away. We, we, we can't do that. Uh, God's at work, God was at work in the life of Sarah, she becomes princess. She's precious, not just to Abraham, but to God as well. Now, what we're gonna find out in Genesis chapter 20 is she's Abram's half-sister. You gotta remember, these are early days in humanity, so it's slim pickings. Of course you're marrying, at a minimum, you're marrying your cousin, okay? Uh, and that's still happening today. Everybody on the planet today is distant cousins. Just you want it to be really, really distant uh, to protect the gene pool. Well, what we got here is a pure genome, and, and so you know, Sister Lovin was on the menu back then, and, and it's not with the giving of the law. Uh, today, it's rightfully gross, and, and so, you know, ugh. Okay, so, but Sarah is a type of the nation of Israel. We're gonna see that, and I give you the cross-references here. You can study that out for yourself. She, she's a picture of the nation of Israel herself, and, uh, and uh, there are actually a lot more references that will clue you into this than what I have listed for you in, in your notes, but here's what I want you to see. She's barren, okay? She starts out barren. She can't be fruitful in and of herself. It takes a, a supernatural intervention for her to be able to flourish in terms of producing life. Okay, now, what's interesting is Sarah is one of seven barren women in your Bible, and all of these barren women are types of Israel, the church and Mary. You'll see those three parallels whenever you study out what the lives of these women picture and teach in terms of spiritual truth. Why do I say that? Well, all of these women have sons who are types of Christ. So in terms of the seven, Sarah has Isaac. Isaac, very clearly, we will see it when we study his life. He is a type, he is, his life pictures that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, in, and it's just beautiful in Genesis chapter 22. It's beautiful in how he receives a bride. Uh, the, the, the way that his life pictures the person of Jesus Christ are some of the most beautiful and romantic and moving stories in all of the Bible. So Sarah has Isaac. Why? Well, she's a picture of Israel and Mary. Rebecca has Jacob, Rachel has Joseph, Hannah has Samuel, and then Menorah's wife. We don't get her name. We just know her as Menorah's wife from the book of Judges. She has Samson, and Samson is supposed to be, in your Bible, this perfect type of Christ. Everything from supernatural birth all the way. I mean, he's supposed to be a perfect picture of Christ. Now, the problem is he's also a perfect picture of a carnal believer, <laughs> And uh, you can see that in his life. And then the Shunammite woman, the Shunammite woman uh, in 2 Kings chapter four, she can't have a baby, and she does, and that baby dies and is resurrected. And then of course Elizabeth, uh, she has John the Baptist. So they all have sons who are types of Christ. All prefigure, they all picture a virgin birth, right? You'll see glimpses of that. I mean, the rest, all of these women are obviously married. Uh, Mary is the only one who supernaturally conceives. Uh, There's a supernatural aspect to all of these other women's conception, but they obviously conceive with their husbands, uh, Sarah with Abraham. But um, Mary, she was a virgin who conceived uh, the Messiah. Okay, they all picture, they all prefigure the spiritual birth of Israel in the time of tribulation, and that's how it's described in Isaiah chapter 66. It is a, it's a birth, it's a birth. <laughs> uh, Israel, uh, this is the way Romans 11 describes it, at the coming of Messiah, 
There's a supernatural preservation of, of the believing Jew when they see the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Uh, the, the, the Jew who, who believes on scripture will flee to the Judean wilderness where they'll be supernaturally protected. They'll be supernaturally preserved. Uh, you'll read about that in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, but when th- their salvation, this birth, as a nation doesn't take place until the Lord Jesus himself comes at the second advent, and Romans 11 says it this way, and all Israel shall be saved, okay? It's, it's, a, it's described as a birth in Isaiah 66, seven and eight. But then all of them also picture the new birth of the New Testament believer. Uh, you'll see insight into your own supernatural birth, being born again, in Christ, uh, so that's the value of studying the lives of these women. So here's the deal, okay, so in this next section in your notes, again, we're just a lot of information this week, okay, moving forward from, from our next time in Genesis, uh, the, the passages get far more devotional, uh, there's a lot more devotional application, but you gotta have this background information. I want you to get the big picture idea with these charts of what we've seen so far in Genesis chapters one through 11. Genesis chapters one through 11 show that God is at work and man has utterly failed. Genesis 1:11 shows you the failure of man. So from the garden, right, the, 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 the fall in the garden to the murder of Abel by Cain, uh, murderers Cain and Lamech, Uh, there in Genesis chapter four to the rebellion, just the outright rebellion of man following after the the leadership of spiritual wickedness in high places in Genesis chapter six. We saw it under the leadership of Nimrod in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Uh, Man is utterly failed in in his sin. So how does God deal with man's incurable sin problem? How does he do it? Well, what we're gonna see moving forward in Genesis is that Abraham is the key. He is the key to the Genesis 3.15 prophecy. How is it gonna be fulfilled? Well, Abraham is the line to the seed of the promised Messiah. Remember Genesis 3.15. Man is now lost in sin, but there is hope, right? God slays an animal to cover the nakedness of their sin before God, and then he gives this promise and prophecy. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It, her seed, shall bruise thy head. He will destroy you, you will hurt him. You will hurt him, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we see this reinforced. We see this prophecy honed as God begins to deal with Abraham. We get more prophecy in Genesis chapter 12. We'll see this next time in verse three. God's promise to Abraham is, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. Watch this, now here it is. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Where is this seed of the woman gonna come from? Well, Abraham, it's gonna be through your line. It's gonna be through a miraculous son that you will have, Isaac. It'll be through his line and, and then he will have sons, Jacob and Esau. It'll be through Jacob's line. It'll be through Judah's line. It'll be through David's line. And it'll come all the way down and, and little Mary, the handmaid of the Lord, little, little precious virgin girl. Uh, the, she will carry this seed of the woman 
the holy thing that's born of her will be the promised Messiah. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so look at your charts here. Uh, These are adapted from uh, Pastor Shelby. Shelby's a a great organizational thinker and, and so I got these from him way back in the day when I was learning Genesis and I just wanna pass them on to you uh, for your viewing pleasure. Okay, so how do you break it down? Uh, Creation to the curse in Genesis chapters one through three. So we see the, the creation of the cosmos in six days, but then we see the problem, right? Man created on the sixth day, everything's good, ends up Right, very soon after creation, he ends up rebelling against the word of the Lord. And that's where the curse of sin takes place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter three. So Genesis chapters one and two, you can see the creation, what God intended, and then you can see the corruption of sin in chapter three. And so, what did we learn? Well, sinful man can only bring reproach to God. So how does he approach God, how does he come to God? It can only be on the basis of a substitute. We saw that in Genesis chapter three. An innocent sacrifice had to be given to cover or carry or deal with your sin. So what did it have to do? What did that animal have to do? It had to die the death that belonged to Adam and Eve. The day that thou eatest thereof, that was the warning in chapter two. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not on the menu. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So what has to happen? We looked at all of this. We saw that spiritually that day he died. He was cut off from the life of God. He was cut off from the tree of life. Uh, Cherubim with flaming sword guard the way to the tree of life. So that, that happened spiritually that day. And then we saw the millennial day principle and what did we find out? Nobody breaks a grand. Nobody lives more than a thousand years in human history. Methuselah gets close, but he can't do it. Why? Because the day you sin, you will surely die. And what did we see in 2 Peter chapter three? If you're gonna understand the principles of prophecy, don't be ignorant of what one thing? That a, okay, a bunch of you got it. When it's all together, it sounds like, here's the principle. Oh yeah, that's right. No, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. There's a millennial day principle that you have to get if you're gonna understand how God is structuring the unfolding of prophecy. Nobody lives a whole day in human history. The the day he ate, he surely died. Okay, so how do we approach God? It's on the basis of a substitute, an innocent sacrifice carrying our sin and suffering our death and that obviously culminates at the cross of Calvary. And then in chapters four through nine, we go from the curse to catastrophe. Uh, We saw in chapter four, Cain's rebellion. Uh, We saw Cain's rebel line. And then in chapter five, five, we see the family of faith, Seth's godly line. But then we see the culmination of wickedness in chapter six, destruction in chapter seven and then a new world in chapters eight and nine. In this section, what did we learn? Well, man, we saw that Abel's faith pictures Christian worship, true worship, while Noah's faith illustrates a Christian's witness. We saw those pictures in our study um, of that section of human history. And then in chapters 10 and 11, we saw in chapter 10 Noah's family tree, and then in chapter 11 Nimrod's 
faulty or failed tower of rebellion. And what did we learn in this section? Well, God's plan is for the good of the whole earth. What did he tell Noah and his descendants? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. It's good for the whole earth. But man's rebellion always leads to tyranny. You always end up with an antichrist uh, when man gets his way. So we put this down, we, di- we distilled all of this into a chart, it puts it, it organizes everything for you. Um, you know, educators tell us that the highest level of communication is about ideas. And the second highest level is about events, and the lowest level is about people. Well, Genesis covers all of that, covers everything. The big ideas, right, the big events, but also the people. And so what do we have here? I wanna just break down the book of Genesis, 50 chapters, but you see two beginnings. So in the first section, we go from creation to the nation. This is what we've covered so far in our study of Genesis. We've seen four major events. So Genesis breaks down into a book of two beginnings. In chapters one through 11, we see the beginning of the human race. And then in chapters 12 through 50, we see the beginning of the Hebrew race where chapters one through 11 cover primeval history, the rest of Genesis covers patriarchal history, the origins of the nation of Israel. That means you have the first 20% of Genesis devoted to four foundational events, and I can just, you see them listed there as creation, the fall, the flood, and Babel. Those are the four major events of early human history. But then the last, and that culminates at the scattering at Babel. But then the last 80% of Genesis is devoted to four uh, foundational persons, four patriarchs. And those are gonna be shown as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The first section, Genesis one through 11, you see the first 2100 years of human history from Adam to Abraham, from creation to Abraham. And then in the second section, chapters 12 through 25, God focuses us on these first four generations of the nation of Israel. Um, these are, so, so chapter one, chapters one through 11, primeval history, chapters 12 through 50, patriarchal history. In the first half, we see the seed of the woman, and then we find out that it's through the seed of Sarah that the Messiah comes. So here's what I want us to get with all of this information, okay? As you begin to ponder what we, what we overviewed for you this morning, I want you to just think about a couple big ideas. Whenever God does something, okay? What have we seen so far? Whenever God begins new things in Genesis, he always starts with people. What does God do? Well, he does a new thing, okay? Satan gets full of himself. I will be like the most high. I'm gonna put my throne up there with God's throne. Everybody ought to be worshiping me, okay? The spirit of Antichrist is birthed in him and, and up, upwards to, well, at least one third of the celestial host end up following him in that rebellion according to Revelation chapter 12. And so all of these sons of God are in rebellion against the creator. Well, God can't stand for that. He's, those sons have walked away from his family And so what does he do to Adam, who is according to Luke chapter three, verse 38, who is the son of God. Adam is a direct creation of God, just like the celestial host are direct creations of God. And what does he tell him? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Fill the earth with with a substitute, with a replacement, with new life. 
that will replace what was lost in this celestial rebellion. So he starts with Adam, he starts with people. And the same thing's true, when you get to the other side of the flood, and what's the commission? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. What does he do? He starts with Noah, he starts with Shem, he starts with Abraham. Anytime God's gonna begin something new, he always starts with a person. And so that's the question on the floor this morning. Who are you? Anytime God does a new thing, he starts with new people. He starts with new people, right? Well, what about you? If God's gonna do a new work through us or through this church or a new work in your life, for sure he's gonna use his word. Absolutely, you'll never be the person that God's called you to be without submission to his word. But brother, sister, listen to me. God uses people. That's what we're gonna see in Genesis. He uses people. See, we tend to think about doing big things for God, and so we need great methodology. We need great structures. We need great, we need great tools and processes, and, and so we think about new methods, but God's always looking for new-made men and women. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for new creatures in Christ who get full of faith and take him at his word. The eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro throughout this planet, through the whole earth, and what's he looking for? He's looking for people. He's looking for new-made, right, faith-filled men and women whose hearts are perfect toward the Lord. And in their life, it's in them that he shows himself perfect, that he shows himself strong. It's in them, it's through them that he works, that he does exploits. They that know their God shall be strong and they shall do exploits. God's looking for new-made, faith-filled men and women. And what we'll see next time is Abraham, he's a man that God would love to use. Romans chapter four, verse three says, for what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him. It was, it was reckoned, it was, it was believed of him, right? It was counted unto him for righteousness. In Abraham was no righteousness. What we find out from scripture, uh, you also get it in the backstory from the book of Joshua, Abram was a liar. Uh, the, I mean, what, what are the six things, yea, seven things that God abhors? What's in that list? Oh yeah, lying. <laughs> Lying's in the list of things that God abhors. Abraham was a liar. And kind of, I mean, sometimes it looks like he's kind of a wussy. Uh, tell everybody you're my sister. When really, I mean, like, Ab- what we're gonna find out is Abraham is like a bad dude, man. Uh, he is a bad mammer jammer. You would not wanna fight him. I mean, you read about this guy and you're like, what a wuss, well, I don't care how bad a mammer jammer, when, Arrow, when Pharaoh, right, or, or Abimelech is surrounded by his guard and his armies, one dude isn't gonna take out an army, okay, or 300 isn't gonna, well, you know, kind of 300 do take out several armies. I mean, Abraham's a bad mammer jammer, but, but I'm just like, like, he's got some character flaws, he's got some issues, tell him you're my sister, because I don't wanna die. What, where's your faith? What happened to the fact that you believe God? No, God counted it to him for righteousness. God made some promises to Abraham and Abraham believed on them and it changed, it set the course of his life. Don't you know God's made some promises to you? Don't you know the word of God is speaking over your heart and your life? It started with the gospel. Did you take the gospel? Did you take God at his word? Whenever you believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ, God counted it to you for righteousness. We aren't righteous in and of ourselves. 
God says, there's a guy that I can use. There's a gal that I can use. They believed on me according to my word. God's looking for new made, faith-filled men and women. Abraham believed God, and that settled it. Verse 20 says, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded, he was full of faith, that what God had promised, what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was reckoned, accounted, given. It was imputed to him for righteousness. So what about you? Do you believe God? Do you take him at his word? Are you fully persuaded that what you've committed to him, he'll keep it against that day? Are you fully persuaded the work that he began in you, he will perform? That what began at your salvation will culminate in you being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to let everything in your life for God to take it and work it for good? Some of you, you've been betrayed, you've been hurt, you've been abused, you've been lied on. And you've done, and you've, and you've perpetrated. You've made part of the mess. Like you've got real messes that you're, will you be willing to just say, God, you know what? I'm done. I'm gonna take you at, my, at your word. I'm gonna believe, I'm gonna be fully persuaded that what you promised you'll perform. I'm a new made creature in Christ. I'm someone that you can use. Again, I've said this a number of times. I'll keep saying it. I'm so encouraged whenever I read 1 Corinthians chapter one. What does it please God to use? Oh yeah the things that are despicable, despisable, <laughs> the things that the world is not impressed with, it pleases God to use to bring glory to himself. That way he gets all the glory, none of it goes to us. Oh God, thank you, I'm qualified. You mean all I gotta do is take you at your word, get full of faith and just move forward? Believing, living, communicating the precious precepts, the pre- precious promises of your word and God, you'll do the work, you'll take it, You'll use it, it'll be, it'll all fall out to your glory, am I good? I'm in. (laughs) God uses people. I'm wondering how many of us, as we go through this second half of Genesis, will we come with the eyes of faith and say, God, if you can use Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, you can use me. And, And these things, right, were written before time, before time. They were written for my ensample. They're a mold that I can pour my life into and follow. What you did in and through them, so help me God by your grace, you are going to do it in and through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name and Lord, I thank you for what we're seeing in the book of Genesis. And and Lord, again, we covered a lot of overview and a lot of tactical, uh, technical details this morning. and Lord, I pray that, that all of these things would be used of you to provoke us to consider. Lord, help us to stand and consider what your word says. Lord, you're always at work and you've got goals that you're accomplishing and it's, our, it's the wickedness of our fleshly desires. It's, our, it's the rebellion of our pride. Uh, Lord, it's these things that keep confounding your will over our life. And so Lord, this morning, help us to agree with you Lord, help us to submit ourselves. Help us to present ourselves. Help us to give ourselves. Lord, only you and you alone are God. Lord, help us to see it and believe it and submit to who you are and what you've said over our lives. And then Lord, perform for your glory. (laughs) Use us for your glory. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.